You're listening to the official podcast of Network for Advancing Athletes, where our mission is to mentor and empower women through sport. In addition to our mentorship programs, we created this podcast to bring you even more wisdom from remarkable women, athletes, coaches, directors, psychologists, managers, and more. You'll get diverse perspectives on sport through the eyes of amazing role models who are out there changing lives every day. Network for Advancing Athletes is a nonprofit organization, and you can support this podcast with tax-deductible donations through Patreon. That's patreon.com slash advancingathletes. And of course, you can learn more about us at our website, advancingathletes.org. Welcome to episode two of our podcast. In this episode, I have the honor of interviewing Rocky LaRose, who is an absolute legend. She went from outstanding student athlete at the University of Arizona to later become the first woman athletic director there for a combined men's and women's program. Not only did she distinguish herself as an athlete, she earned a full scholarship to U of A for softball, one of the first ever scholarships available through Title IX, was part of the U of A's first conference championship team, a member of the ASA Fast Pitch National Championship team, and later represented the United States at the Softball World Championships in Tokyo. But she would also go on to become the first woman director of athletics at University of Arizona, where she served in many roles over 35 years. In 2004, she officially retired as Deputy Director of Athletics. In reading up on Rocky, I came across countless articles recounting not only her many successes and firsts, but also how truly beloved she is among her colleagues and all of those whose lives she impacted. It's no wonder. I'll highlight a few of her accomplishments here to give you a sense of her background, but please understand, to do justice to her career would take way too long for an intro. I'm hitting the highlights here, but if you have the time, read up on her for some serious inspiration. Rocky earned a Bachelor's of Physical Education and Master's of Education from University of Arizona. In 1978, she was the U of A homecoming queen. In 1979, she played for U of A as infielder and cleanup batter, competed in the World Championships in Tokyo, was part of the ASA National Championship team, and, of course, U of A's first ever conference championship team. That same year, she played semi-pro AAA fast-pitch softball for the Sun City Saints and was eventually brought on as softball coach for the U of A. In 1983, she helped transition the then-separate men's and women's programs into one department under athletic director Cedric Dempsey. Also in 1983, she was named one of the Outstanding Young Women in America. In the early 90s, she became the first woman responsible for day-to-day operations for FBS Division I football and men's basketball programs, in addition to having oversight of all 20 sports programs. In 2009, she became the acting athletic director of U of A, the first woman athletic director at the University of Arizona. Rocky served as a member of the Pac-10, Pac-12 Council and three times as vice president. She also served as a charter member of the NC2A Management Council and in 2004 was awarded the Billy Joe Varney Award, University of Arizona's top staff award. She was part of 20 of Arizona's 21 team national championships and has been inducted into the University of Arizona Hall of Fame. She has received several awards from local organizations, including Women on the Move and the Tucson's Women of Influence. I really could go on, but let's get to the fun part. Hearing from the legend herself, Rocky LaRose. We are here with Rocky LaRose. Thank you so much for taking time today to talk with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. <laughs> and I would like to extend a congratulations on your recent retirement. Thank you. And seriously and sincerely, thank you for all that you've done for women in sport because you've been an incredible pioneer. And in many ways, as an athlete, as, a, as a, an administrator at the University of Arizona, becoming athletic director, I mean, it's just... An incredible poetic fairy tale story. <laughs> well, and good timing on my part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well done. Good timing. <laughs> um, 
So I, one of the questions I think people might be wondering is Rocky. So your name is actually Kathleen, am I right? That's right. All right. So how did you get the nickname Rocky? Oh my goodness. Well, my maiden name is Rock and Field. And mm-hmm. so this started way back in the first grade. The little <laughs> boys started, you know, thinking they were kidding me by calling me Rocky. And then, you know, when you become involved in sports, everybody has a nickname. Yeah. And it just sort of stuck. And I remember I tried to get rid of it at every you know, new adventure, whether it was going into high school or going into college and somehow it just stuck. It stuck it and just here we stuck. are. <laughs> and I don't think anybody even knows my legal name anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, so, okay. A lot of your career has been centered on sport and a lot of your life, in fact. So one of the questions I'm just going to ask you straight up is, um, why in your view, from your perspective, your experience is, is sport valuable? Wow, where do you begin? I, uh, as you know, sport is kind of this microism of daily life, and I can't think of a better way to practice what you need either in daily life or eventually in your career than when you're young and on a practice field or on mm-hmm. a competitive field. I mean, if you think about it, everything you need to learn is there. It's there's conflict. There's learning how to work with each other. There's teamwork. There's happiness. There's joy. There's failure. There's success. Um, I, you know, it's learning about yourself, and it's just an incredible practice field for life, for life's right. issues and life skills. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's it's a great environment to to test things, to try different things, because it's a place where you can fail safely, right? Correct. It's yes. Yeah. Essentially, well, in most, you know, a game, a practice, it's not, it's not a life or death situation. Right. And especially as a, as a youngster, but even at any age. Right. And it puts you in situations where you need to react quickly. So you learn too how to think on your feet. And I think if you're reflective, if your parents help you and and are reflective on your behavior, you can, you can kind of guide yourself to who you want to be. Absolutely. Um, so Obviously, with Network for Advancing Athletes, we work with female athletes in particular. So have you, do you have any perspective on how sport might be valuable or is valuable to women in particular? Yes. I think, uh, you know, if you put, and I don't want to be too generalistic here, but if mm-hmm. you put a man versus a woman in, in front of you, you, you tend to think that the woman is the relationship builder. Mm-hmm. And... There's nothing more valuable than learning how to get along with people and how to build relationships, especially if you're not particularly fond of the person sitting <laughs> next to you on the bench. So uh, uh, I, I think that's probably one of the most valuable things about sport for young, young girls and young women. Um, I think the other thing is just simply their health and well-being, mm-hmm. um, you know, and how they progress in life. You know, I truly believe in the mind, body, and spirit, and I think you need a... a, a a healthy body to have a healthy mind and starting young and building that into your lifestyle I think is very critical to how your life will proceed you know I have I always think of the story of of my husband who's who's a big outdoor guy and several years ago we decided we were going to hike the Grand Canyon of course he's done it multiple times but I had not done it and he said well now you got to train you got to get out there and train and I was moaning and groaning (laughs) and you know about training he said fine we'll just go tomorrow he said, we'll just go tomorrow. No training. He goes, uh, it will be one miserable, long, painful adventure, but we will go tomorrow. And, you know, he said, or you can choose to train and then it might be 
actually a fun adventure and one that you enjoy and can take in the scenery if you're if you train and you're more fit. And I think that's such a wonderful analogy to life that if you grow up and you think about wanting to have uh, good health, good fitness, good well-being, uh, your mind and your body coming together, your life could be a lot more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So how did you get into sport as a youngster? Well, thank goodness for my parents, because I'm a, I'm a Title IX baby in mm-hmm. the sense, uh, you know, I hit uh, um, the middle years of my high school and then my first years of college, you know, Title IX was in its infancy. Right. But pre, pre-high school, there weren't many opportunities for women, but for some reason, or young girls, but thank goodness, Arizona uh, women love softball. And they started playing it way back in the 30s. And um, there was kind of this tradition in Arizona for young girls and women in softball. And so our little local local school started a summer program for young girls uh, playing softball. And, you know, I, I laugh because I, I have one of my best friends is almost exactly a year older than me because my birthday's in November. Her birthday was in January. So I remember we walked down there to sign up. This is when we were very little. I, I can't remember now if we were seven or eight, but I, th- I think you had to be eight to, to join. And I remember walking up to the table and finding out that I couldn't play for a year and she got to play and oh. my heart was just broken. Uh, but it all worked out fine. And, uh, Again, thank goodness to my parents who encouraged that from from the time I was very young. Mm-hmm. So I started out in softball, and, and it led me to some, some wonderful places. Now, I read somewhere also that you were part of um, a badminton championship oh. team. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Actually, I am so proud of that. Um, actually, I wasn't... I was actually the individual champion for the state of Arizona. And... When I entered high school, again, pre-Title IX, the only options we had uh, were badminton, Mm -hmm. tennis, archery, and track and field. And being a softball player, (laughs) that wasn't available (laughs) at the time. So I, I honestly, I wish I could remember how I got involved in badminton. But let me just tell you, that is one tough sport. I believe it. It is. I believe it. It is very aerobic. And you just need to watch the Olympics sometime to see it. So I'm very proud of that. But of course, you know, the the United States of America pictures badminton as this backyard pinging it back and forth. But um, I'm very, I'm very, I am, I'm very proud of that. I actually, when ASU started their women's varsity program, badminton was one of the sports. And so, so it was also at the U of A. But since I grew up in Phoenix and won at a Phoenix high school, I actually got offered a scholarship to play badminton at uh, ASU but and I went over and I remember visiting the team and watching them work out and you know at the time we we didn't have the knowledge of fitness and and working out and training and um, I thought you know I think I just want to go play softball with (laughs) with my friends (laughs) so so what was it about softball that really captured you honestly it was it was the friendships it truly was. Uh, you know, I talked about my, my, my best friend, my BFF, before mm-hmm. there were BFFs when we were both seven and eight years old. Uh, we played all the way through our summer programs. Uh, as I said, we didn't get the chance to play in high school, but we played together on the University of Arizona team. And so it, it truly was the friendships that, that pulled it together. Um, and I think the opportunities that were there, too, mm-hmm. for softball in the state. You know, eventually I 
had to play on the national championship summer teams, you know, the AAA team, and uh, and then we represented the universe. The, excuse me, we represented the United States of America in the World Cup in in Japan in '79. So oh it was just it was it was it was an exciting time, and and uh, you know, hopefully, I had a little bit of talent. I you know, I wasn't the top talent, but enough to to enjoy experiences. Well, you were adventures. one of the first women at the University of Arizona to earn a full ride athletic scholarship. Is that right? That's right. And again, that was just good timing. And I don't know if it's my good timing or my parents' good timing. Uh, but, uh, good job, parents. Yeah. But they literally started offering full ride scholarships when I arrived. And so I am very grateful. I have to tell you, the day that that happened, I thought I hit the lottery. I couldn't believe it. You know, when we were young, we didn't grow up to aspire to be collegiate athletes or Mm -hmm. aspire to win an athletic scholarship because that wasn't even in our realm of thinking in the 60s. Right. And um, so the women of the 70s, you know, we are, this, this is what's amazing when I look back on it historically. We were the first generation of women, not only in the United States of America, but the first generation of women in the world to compete intercollegiately. And that still just, still just bring, brings goosebumps to me. And, yeah. you know, I think we were, um, we were so overjoyed. It was like birthday every day, like we're filled with birthday gifts, you know, the scholarship. And then, oh my gosh, we got a letter and oh my God, we get to get on a plane and fly somewhere <laughs> and play. And, you know, that first time you put on the jersey with, you know, Arizona in the front, you know, we didn't have our names back then because we didn't have enough money to put names on the back of the jerseys. But to have Arizona in the front, to know you were representing your university. Um, I think sometimes people look back at that era and think we were all, you know, raising our fists and we weren't we were joyous we could not believe what we were we were able to do and and we were having fun and it was just it was a a marvelous historic time now you know our coaches that was a different perspective you know they had a little bit bigger picture they could see what was happening they see what you know where we were going perhaps and so I think you know they had a lot more pressure on them but I think uh, those of us who got to step on that field for the very first time were just in awe, just yeah. in awe. And it speaks a lot of the coaches to know that they were under this pressure and they could see the bigger historic picture of what was happening here and mm-hmm. wanting to make this a good thing and, and to be successful. And yet they were able to create an environment where the athletes could just revel in the joy of sport and not and, and be somewhat shielded from that pressure. Right. I mean, that's that's not an easy thing for a coach to do. No, exactly. And we have to remember, they were new at this also. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so were the True. athletic directors. You know, we were, back then we were in the AIAW, mm-hmm. Association of Collegiate Athletics for Women, not the NCAA. There was a lot of pressure to, to slow our growth, to, you know, to not, wow. you know. So, um, yeah, the, the women who were the ADs back then, the coaches, they were up against a lot. Yeah. They really were. Where was the pressure coming from to slow the growth? Do you know? Uh, well, I think it was the NCAA and the, and the men. You know, you'd have to look historically. I, uh, you know, clearly, I mean, that's in the books. You know, when, mm-hmm. when Title IX went before Congress, eventually the NCAA tried to overrule that, get an amendment put through that would eliminate football from... First they tried to eliminate Title IX, then they tried to uh, eliminate football from the calculations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there was a lot of fear back then about what sharing the resources would do for men's athletics. Um, of course, that all changed 
mm-hmm. in 83 when the NCAA decided to bring the women into the fold, and right. AIW then was no longer. Um, and honestly, that was another historic moment. And I, I remember it vividly because um, I, at that point, was working as our athletic director's assistant AD in the women's program only. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were housed uh, separately, you know, met our own facilities. And um, there was quite a distinction, obviously, between what we had available to us as women and what the men had available to them in terms of support for athletes. And when our new athletic director arrived, Cedric Dempsey, who later became the president of the NCAA, was very progressive, very proactive, uh, eventually, you know, put me over day-to-day operations of football and men's basketball. So he had a very proactive and progressive outlook and vision for what he wanted for the University of Arizona. But when he got there, his one of his first um, activities, his first thing that he did mm-hmm. was merge the programs. And I'll, I'll just never forget that, moving from the building that we were in over to Big McHale Center, the gym, you know. And this isn't a story about, oh, we had to walk five miles in the snow. Right. Because again, <laughs> you know, we were... I think we were just still so in awe of what we were able to do. But by then, we had pretty much figured out that, yeah, the women need more. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to fight for that. But was, So when we came over to McHale, it was like the doors flew open. All of a sudden, we actually had a weight room. We had a bigger training room. We had support staff. We had media people who were actually like looking at our events and sending the scores to the papers. And you know, we just couldn't believe all the things that started to happen in the early 80s when we, when we merged programs. So that was a, that too was a very exciting time. And I always have to laugh because I I still fight this to this day. For some reason the media did not understand what AIAW was about. Mm-hmm. I mean that's my my interpretation of right. it. They they thought, you know, perhaps we had secret handshakes and we were doing something. <laughs> I don't know. But once we entered the NCAA, they got it. I mean, we still have a long ways to go, but they got it. They're like, oh, I get it. They're going for national championships, and the NCAA sponsors national championships, so that's what they're doing. But, you know, we were doing the same thing in AIW. We had, we were, they, AIW was sponsoring national championships for women. But it's interesting. It was interesting to me to see that happen and um, all of a sudden be a part of that. I mean, still to this day, sometimes schools will categorize a national championship or a national champion from AIAW differently than NCAA. And, and yet we were doing the exact same thing. So, yeah. Yeah, it was just the, the the perception was different based on the framework and so as soon as you merged frameworks suddenly it all made sense. It all to made you. sense, right. That's so interesting. Right. And the me- and, and this is an important point because the media is such an important um, platform in terms of creating public perception. Right. And and support for women in sports. So that right. was and when you describe that merging of the two programs between the men's program and the women's program, it sounds like the one of the biggest differences that made was not only in terms of the perception of the media, but also just in terms of access to resources. Is that right? Absolutely. There, there's just no doubt. And, um, you know, we had a, a roll-up backstop on our softball field, and suddenly we were going to get a dugout, you know, wow. that we had never had. We had just had benches on the sideline. Um, but more importantly were the support services, even mm-hmm. than the facilities, I think. And, and 
uh, we had one trainer on the women's side. You know, we moved over to the men's, merged staffs, and suddenly we had access to uh, multiple trainers. Um, you know, academic, we had no academic support on the women's side. Moved over to the men's, and now we had uh, academic advisors that we could go to that would oh help us. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it truly was. Uh, the doors just literally flew open. They truly did. So it's interesting because those it sounds like the the resources and access to resources were still somewhat unequal even after title nine. Oh yes oh yes no doubt about it because our i mean it was interesting to watch the growth but when women's athletics started at the university of arizona in 1972 the budget was twenty thousand oh dollars and that gosh. came that came from um you know the student student uh student body the um you know from as UA, what is that? Associated Students. They're the ones who supplied us the, the, the $20,000. But by the end of the decade, we had almost three quarters of a million. And of course, where did that money come from? But it came from the men's program. So the women's uh, athletic director, uh, she had full autonomy over the, the women's program, but she reported to the men's AD. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that money then, uh, by that time, the university said it's time to share when Title IX was passed. Mm-hmm. And so the men's program had to uh, supply money to the women's program. Mm-hmm. And I think eventually, as that started to develop, uh, the men's ADs said, well, if we're going to be doing that, then we need to have more say. And that's when I think the program started to merge. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you progressed from a University of Arizona student athlete and you eventually became acting athletic director. Is that right? That's correct. And you were also, um, (laughs) you were the first woman or one of the first women in the country to oversee day-to-day operations of two men's revenue sports, football and basketball. And I think some people listening might not understand what that means, a revenue sport. So what, what exactly constitutes a revenue sport and why was this historically meaningful? Well, uh, Quite simply, football, men's basketball are traditionally, historically, the only two sports that make a profit. And so, therefore, they're called revenue sports. Now, in some cases, ice, men's ice, ice hockey in the Midwest mm-hmm. may be the revenue sport yeah. for that school. <laughs> but uh, majority, it's football and men's basketball. And, um, you know, up until that time... When programs merged, typically the women's AD became an assistant or an associate AD and oversaw the non-revenue sports. Mm -hmm. Or they oversaw the support services, the academics, the training room. But they were not put in Mm -hmm. position to work with football and men's basketball. And, of course, that's critical if women are to advance into leadership roles yeah. to become directors of athletics in combined programs. So, again, as I mentioned, fortunately, I got to work with a very progressive and proactive male AD, said Dempsey, who in the early 90s uh, had an opportunity when one of our associate ADs left to become an AD in another institution. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and put me in that position to yeah. work day-to-day operations with with not only football, men's basketball, but all the sports. You know, that's the way he chose to structure the department. And um, so I became, 
you know, one of the first women to have that opportunity to work that closely with football and men's basketball. Right. And I think for our listeners, uh, college athletics is is big business, really, at the end of the day. And so what you were doing was essentially taking on an executive management role in this. It's not a corporation. It's a university. But, I mean, it runs like a big business. business. Correct. So you were in charge of (laughs) the bottom line. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. um, I mean, anything day to day, whether there was a student athlete coach conflict or there was a scholarship issue or there was uh, approval for a purchase, uh, which can be quite large when it comes to football. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're they're. Their day-to-day operations, uh, overseeing uh, the the people on their staff that was in charge of planes, trains, and automobiles to get people to get the teams to away games, to bowl games. You know, bowl games is a is a is a huge event mm-hmm. at, in an athletic department. It it uh, takes multiple people and weeks to pull pull off, and uh, so overseeing the logistics of of that alone was. A full-time job yeah yeah and so, and we were fortunate as you know in men's basketball to to travel to multiple final fours right and, and win the national championship in 97 pretty and, successful program yeah and, and to turn around to know you're going to the final four and have three or four days to turn that around is is, is quite a job yeah no kidding mm-hmm. did you find that your experience as an athlete kind of helped prepare you for this role? oh absolutely absolutely and i think that helped build credibility with the coaches mm-hmm. um yeah it, it absolutely did you know I, I understood competitiveness I understood what they wanted I understand where they were going at the same time I didn't want to step into it and I'm not I don't really know how this popped into my head but this this one word when I when I started working with them came in and it was in infiltrate <laughs> and I don't I don't mean that in a negative way I mean mm-hmm. that in a way that um you you infiltrate so that you learn and you understand what their needs are and what they need so that you can help facilitate them to get better and to succeed mm-hmm. you know it's it's coaches are like athletes they have the blinders on and they're going one way and you know that's to the top and they tend not to see things in their peripheral vision. <laughs> so I think, you know, as administrator, my role was to provide the vision, of course, but coaches already have that, mm-hmm. uh, was to find a line where I'm not the coach, but I want to try to provide the coach and the team with everything they need to be successful and uh, and have the bigger picture to make sure we stay within the rules to make sure we're going in the right direction. Yeah. So, so it's a little bit different. We allow them to pursue excellence and to pursue the championships and pursue the success. And then we're there to help them. So anyway, the infiltrate was my word. <laughs> and, um, I loved it because I loved actually working with the men. I, I absolutely loved it because I, I feed off that competitiveness and, and, um, so it was, uh, it was a wonderful time in my career. It truly yeah. was. And this is something that comes up pretty often in talking with athletes and our mentors is, um, and, and we talked about this in our last episode as well, that women don't often get a ton of positive social feedback for being competitive or embracing their competitive side, because sometimes it can be seen as, you know, if, if you're a competitive man, okay, you're ambitious. That's a good thing. If you're a competitive woman, 
you're maybe not a very nice person. (laughs) (laughs) I know where you're going with this. Yes. (laughs) So, I mean, is that something that you've seen in your career and how do you, how do you reconcile that personally? Yeah, I have. And I think, um, I have, I, I, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm thinking of a quote, our, our most successful coach at the university of Arizona said one time and it just stuck with me because I wasn't truly able to articulate this but this is coach Mike Candrea and he's won eight national championships in softball at the University of Arizona (laughs) and he said men need to play good to feel good and women need to feel good to play good and I thought that was so brilliant um because there are differences and we have to acknowledge that in the yes. way that women approach competitiveness, the way men approach competitiveness. And uh, that's not to put anyone in a corner because we're, we're all different. But generally speaking, we have to admit, if you hold up a sign for football, for tryouts, you're going to get a lot of young men coming out to try out. Yeah. If you hold up a sign for tryouts for women, there are very few. And, and uh, it's just a fact that... Uh, you know, there's a difference there. And I think, you know, women <laughs> just don't care to sit on the end of the bench necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly not for a bad looking jacket, you know. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, um, but, but that said, they're both very, very competitive. It's just in their own ways. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. It's it, it's definitely definitely different, but definitely there. And I think that's probably in my administrative role. You know, I thought a lot about that, and that's why I think I chose the word infiltrate rather than dominate because oh, yeah. um, because I had seen women in roles where they were you know our only role model. Let's face it, our only role model in athletics were the male ADs and the male coaches. Yeah. So I think it it's taken us a while to sort of find our own way and our how we're going to administrate and lead. And I think we're there. Uh, we just still need more opportunity. But I, I remember one time one of our staff members, and all these people will go unnamed, <laughs> but a, a woman who was in a, a, a position of overseeing one of our pretty... Uh, uh, you know, important areas in the athletic department. And yeah, she came off as a football coach. And I think that was because it was her only role model at the time. And I remember we would, we talked through that greatly in trying to find yourself amid, amidst all this competitiveness mm-hmm. and testosterone. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. um, you know, so it, there were some really truly challenging times and I think we're still evolving, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's this is a thing I think that most athletes run into as a challenge because when we look at successful athletes, and I'm going to just use the term athletes for the time being, but I mean it could be athletic directors, it could be CEOs, it could be whatever role model it happens to be, but we look at people who are successful in a path that we might be interested in. And, you know, the we might only know of a handful of people who've gone there and done this thing. And so there becomes this perception that, oh, I have to have this specific personality type, or I have to, you know, have this specific image or check these specific boxes to do this thing. And I think one of the hardest things for athletes to recognize and learn is that there are multiple paths 
pathways to excellence and to success. And you don't have to be a type AAA personality. You can be a type B personality. Um, and and that, that there are so many different ways to get there. And I think that the more women role models we have as athlete role models for, for young girls, the better off we are because then you can see, hey, there's these, you know, literally hundreds of different personality types that have become successful in their own ways, have found their own mode of operation, their own way of um, achieving efficacy in, in their roles. And I think that this is a really important aspect of representation in roles like athletic directors, administration, and collegiate athletics, because you know, as, as women, when we're coming up, like you said, if, if the only role model you have is a man, it, it's not, it's going to be so much harder to find your own style and how, how to get to reach that excellence. So, um, that's really interesting that you're coming, that you were coming up this path at a time when it was predominantly male role models. Have you seen a difference in terms of more women becoming interested in these administrative roles now that there's more representation? Yes. I mean, there's, you know, when I started out, I was literally the only woman, <laughs> you know, the only woman once, you know, Mary Roby, who was our director of women's athletics retired, I was the only woman on the administrative staff for, for many, many years. Yeah. And of course, that's where women need to help women. And, yeah. you know, one of my goals was to, to see more women around in the department and make sure that happens. You know, the sad part about this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I was thinking back what you were saying. In the 70s, I remember uh, when I was playing badminton at the, at the <laughs> high school, and then I played tennis. Uh, the boys, because they were fairly immature in high school, you know, the thing that they started calling us was jockette. And I was so highly offended, you know, and, um, now of course I would wear it proudly, but <laughs> back then, you know, it was, it was offensive. And so I, I think we've just come such a long way. I mean, title nine is just, it's phenomenal what has happened with yeah. title nine and how society has changed. And yes, we still have a long way to go. But when I think back to the 70s and the 80s, and now I see women today that are actually put on pedestals for their athleticism yes. and their fitness and their beauty and their talents, it's um, we have come a long way. Um, we, we, we truly have. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough balance, right? Because there, there's a traditional view of femininity, <laughs> right? which can and has historically been at odds with our traditional view of athleticism and athletes. And I think we're, we, we have come a long way in recognizing that the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can be a feminine woman and actually be extremely strong and successful and excellent in, in right. whatever sport or discipline it is that you're in. But I mean, I think there's still a lot of cultural inertia there. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I remember I was um, very fortunate. How the heck this happened? I have no idea. But I got, I got uh, picked as the homecoming queen That's for right. the University yes. of Arizona. Yes. <laughs> and the first question that our student newspaper asked me was, "How can an athlete be a homecoming queen?" Oh, you're kidding. Yeah. That's and so I telling. was so blown away by that. Uh, so that just shows you, I think, how, how times have changed also. Um, you know, the sad part is when it was women's only departments, you know, I don't know the figure, but 99% or something of the leadership were women. The overwhelming majority of coaches were women. And as soon as we merged the programs, those numbers drastically fell. 
And so, which is an interesting phenomenon. And uh, I, you know, I, I, I know kind of how it happened in the coaching ranks because I think, again, men had the most experience already because they've been doing this since the 1800s, let's mm-hmm. face it. Yeah. And suddenly men realized that that might be a career path for them. And hmm. they had the jump, you know, ahead of the women who had little experience at the time of coaching. So I think uh, as the pressure build and the stresses build to win, especially at D- Division One level, um, the athletic directors went with experience and mm-hmm. with what, what they knew also, which was that coaches, male coaches were had the experience and the success. So unfortunately, we've never caught up there. We're, we're still way behind in that area. Yeah. And uh, that's always a... A conundrum, I should say, is that yeah. the word for, yeah. for for administrators? Because you want women there, you want women coaches to be role models and 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 to bring view their viewpoint to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you don't want to set a woman up for failure, right? And so it it's you know it's it's always you know if a woman doesn't have the experience. You know, you you want to bring her in and, you know, facilitate everything she needs to make her successful. You have to be absolutely on your game for that. Right, right. And mm-hmm. I want to get back to the when you were the only woman yeah. <laughs> in the administration here working right. on this stuff. Um, that must have been a, a huge challenge because being the only woman, you're interacting with all men, coaches, yes. administrators, um, what were some challenges that you experienced there or was it challenging even? Well, I think because I had the support of the athletic director, that certainly helped. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, I could tell you a few stories. Um, <laughs> again, though, they're still living, these people. So <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> maybe, maybe in, you know, 30 years, I'll write a book. But um, I think you should. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have, you know, walking into the football locker room. That was quite a story oh, back boy. in the early 90s. Um, but... Beyond that, I just, I feel so grateful that I actually had some really wonderful men to work with. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think once I built trust, you know, one of the greatest compliments ever given to me was at my retirement party when Coach Lou Olson stood up and said, you know, if I wanted a straight uh-huh. answer and really wanted to know what was going on, I went to Rocky. And, uh-huh. you know, that was, that was an awesome compliment. That, um, you know, I think sometimes, especially at Division One, and I don't, I don't want to overstate this, but athletics tends to be very militaristic in the sense that there's a general, there's the coach, and, yeah. and coaches are hardly questioned. And as a woman, you know, you think of your mom. Who's the one who always told you straight, who always <laughs> told you how it was? It was your mom. Yeah. And I think that woman's perspective of why not? This is the way it is. And so I th- I surprised some coaches, I think, by my ability to just walk in and say, here you go. This is it. And my abilities to say no or maybe to challenge a coach mm-hmm. when they typically had never been challenged either by their assistant coaches or by other managers in the department. Yeah. Um, so it was a whole different perspective, and I think they learned to rely on me, especially when it came to student-athlete crisis or parent involvement or, you know, there was a side that we could see that perhaps they weren't willing to deal with. Right, right. Certainly, I mean, 
we were talking earlier in this conversation about how there are very clear differences between men and women. I mean, it's just, it's yeah, just a biological fact. Right, right. And a lot of those differences are biological, some are psychological, um, but certainly having a woman's perspective, you know, and again, not to overgeneralize or mm-hmm. stereotype, but I mean, it brings a diversity of perspective and a diversity of awareness too. So I'm sure, yeah. I mean, so let's talk a little bit about your role as administrator. You were interacting with coaches and students and kind of fighting some of those fires. I mean, what was, what, what were some of the, what were some of the fires that you would have to put out? What were some of the things that you were working on? There? Oh my gosh. Well, um, yeah, I many times thought I was just a fire chief, you know, <laughs> or a fire fireman, fire person. Uh, it was just about putting fires out and, um, uh, again, as you mentioned, Division One athletics, although it's very well uh, grounded in in our purpose of of developing young people, and um, you know there is big business to it because of the involvement of donors and the and the community and selling tickets and marketing, yeah. and with that comes a lot of opportunity for misadventures. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, you never knew. And I think that's what I actually loved about my job was I never knew what was going to happen when I walked in there. And uh, it, it, it could be, you know, um, you know as, as we've evolved in athletics, stresses have become greater for athletes as well, uh, whether it's to keep their scholarship or to make sure they get to play so that they can showcase their talents so they can become professional athletes. And, you know, when some of those dreams aren't coming to reality, uh, a lots of, lots of, um, you know, hurt and anger and, uh, things can come out, especially when you're young and you haven't yet figured out how to, how you want to react to certain things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there were a lot of student athlete issues and making sure that their well being was, was, uh, first and foremost. Um, uh, you know, we would, uh, when we went to the final four, I remember when we, went in 1994 to Charlotte. We had a three-day turnaround, and we took three DC-10s of donors back to Charlotte and, you know, placing all of them in hotels. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had a travel agency that was helping us. But, you know, you want to stay within the budget. And, uh, you know, we Arizona is, is has been incredibly successful, but we're the little engine that could. We don't have the budgets that, you know, Alabama or... Uh, Florida, uh, you know, some of those, Michigan, some of those programs have. So we are very cognizant of how we spend our dollars. And so keeping coaches in control of the budget um, and and making sure we were focused on at least breaking even when we went to a Final Four or we went to a bowl game where we could save some money to put back into the program was mm-hmm. was one of my main opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> But the other thing was, and I, I love the way we had a, the department structured, I basically dealt with everything that had to do with a student-athlete and a coach's day-to-day lives. So um, all the support services reported to me, which made it very convenient for coaches because if they had an issue in the training room or the academic services or the strength and conditioning area um, or the equipment room, uh, they came to me and, you know, we had one-stop shopping, so to speak, and, mm-hmm. and could solve issues and things fairly quickly. Um, so that was nice. 
later on, as I became deputy, of course, then it, it became a more global departmental responsibility. But uh, I did do some development work at one point, some fundraising, um, thanks to the athletic director who felt I needed that experience. Mm-hmm. So he was very mentoring, oh, that's and wonderful. I did do that. But fortunately, I didn't have to get too involved in the ticketing and the marketing side of things. Right, right. So you were dealing with coaches and athletes across the board Um did you find that most of the challenges, I'm going to just pick athletes here for the moment, but did you find that most of the challenges facing the athletes were universal or were there differences um, that you could generalize between some of the challenges that female athletes would face versus male athletes? Or Yeah, I think the challenges are different. Again, it's the relationships, you know, the women mm-hmm. learning how, you know, how they, they feel and play together. Um, definitely a difference on that aspect whereas the men's side it just typically was they weren't getting enough playing time you know Mm -hmm. it wasn't the relationship conflicts that I would see on the women's side Mm -hmm. but all in all generally yeah it's 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 all the same as we've progressed and evolved particularly on the women's side uh, it becomes more and more about playing time yeah it becomes more and more about the scholarship and whether you can keep it or lose it Mm -hmm. Um, so you know Primarily, it was about when we think of student athlete issues, it's whether they were being treated fairly or not, or if there was the coach's pet versus mm-hmm. the one that always, you know, <laughs> and which always kind of makes me chuckle because to this day, I have never come across a coach who would not play the most talented athletes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're there to win, too. Yeah. So, you know, but. There are certain reasons why you would sit, obviously, a, a talented athlete. But for the most part, uh, they're going to play their most talented That's a shocker. Student. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we've kind of looked at in terms of mentoring athletes through Network for Advancing Athletes is we do find that a lot of the challenges facing athletes tend to be universal, but a lot of them come, you know, as, as women, we certainly face some unique challenges. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's interesting to hear you talk about those relationships and, and just your story, having worked with men as the only woman in the department. Um, a lot of this comes back to in sport. You said early in this conversation, learning to work with a person that you don't necessarily particularly like. So I think that's kind of gets back to one of those transferable life skills that we can learn in sport is you're on a team you're not on a team where you've gone around and picked all your favorite people. Mm-hmm. You're on a team of people who can get the job done. And you may or may not get along on a personal level with everybody, but how do you get in there, like you said, and infiltrate yeah. and and figure out the best way to be effective and work with your team of people around you, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I think the men can kind of brush that off their shoulder. If, you know, if the star happens to be, you know, I won't use the a term but you know not very not very nice (laughs) not very nice how's that that's good Uh, that works (laughs) he's still a teammate and they have this ultimate goal in place I think on the women's side a friend is a friend is a friend whether you're on Mm -hmm. the field or you're off the field Mm -hmm. and I think recognizing that and coaches recognizing that allows for them to streamline their activities in a way that they all can be successful. And that's a key difference where having representation in 
a collegiate athletic department, having women in administrative roles, somebody like you who's working with the coaches and athletes who can look at that and actually really understand it from, from both sides. I mean, you've worked with the male coaches, male athletes, but you've also been a female athlete yourself, been right. a female coach yourself right. even, right? Right, right. And right. briefly, let's touch on that. So you did coach for a while, is that right? Just for one year. <laughs> <laughs> one year. <laughs> yep. Uh, but what an experience that was. I mean, talk about going from athlete to putting on that coach's hat was really eye-opening. Really? Yeah, it truly was because... I had friends on the team. Uh, oh, I mean, wow. that that will never happen again. Let me just say that. It will never happen again, <laughs> at least not at a Division One level. But again, mm-hmm. because we women's athletics was such in its infancy, um, you know, I think the athletic director, I asked her one time and she just smiled at me, but uh, because that's what kick-started my career. I was on the softball team as a senior. I graduated in May, and she appointed me as softball coach in July. Wow. And I was 21 years old. Oh my. And I had no idea what I was doing and still had friends on the team. So I, you know, I, I, I wish she would have answered that for me because I asked her one time, I said, you know, what was it you saw in me that, that, that allowed you to, to appoint me at such a young age? And I think primarily, and she never answered, I, I jokingly say that because I had played on, uh, the first conference team at mm-hmm. our university because I got this incredible opportunity to play for the Sun City Saints that ended up winning the national championship. Right. You were, yeah, yeah. And then moved on to be able to play in the World Cup. Um, and I wasn't one of the prominent players, but I was part of the team. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there was this sense that if you played well, you could coach well, <laughs> which wasn't necessarily the case. And I've sort of... It's that's been an interesting phenomenon over the years to see that in some cases it's it's the ones that aren't the star athletes that are really studying the game or studying the sport that uh, see the nuances in people and talent and, and strategy that become the better coaches. So I, I do think because of my success in the sport, that's why she anointed me that incredible opportunity for one year. And then I stepped in the role as being her assistant athletic director yeah. after that. Um, but uh, I'm very grateful about that. But, I, you know, it was, um, it was an incredible experience. It taught me so, so much. I learned so much. And I'm just grateful for it. Yeah. So that was a hefty dose of perspective then. It was. Seeing the other side and all of a sudden realizing you had to put on this more global view of things um, was really, it was, it was really, I'm, you know, it was just an incredible experience. And I imagine that's helped you now in your administrative role relate to other coaches. It it does. Yeah, exactly. Because I felt the stresses of winning. I felt the stresses of you know, keeping everyone together and, and molding a team and trying to get us all to work in one direction. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it helped greatly. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that, I mean, we've seen a lot of progress in the sport as far as opportunities for women. Um, and, and you kind of, you even mentioned that you, I feel like we're here, we're there, but, um, we still need more opportunity. What are some of the things that you would like to see happen for women in sport? Well, I think it's more coverage, of course, mm-hmm. more media coverage, which I think brings credibility to the athlete. Um, I think 
we still need more opportunities. You know, I don't know the exact statistics, but I don't, you know, I think there are still many schools who uh, have not met one of the prongs of Title IX to provide more opportunities for young women. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope at some point that we don't go backwards, and I say that in the sense that as athletic departments struggle to find resources, that they end up having less teams instead of more teams. Yeah. I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges in the future. Otherwise, I feel good about where we are in terms of how both men's and women's teams, women's teams in particular, are treated in athletic departments. I mean, especially at, at our Division One level. I mean, let's face it, the women fly to competitions just as the men do. Mm-hmm. They sleep two to a room now, unlike in the old days when we used to have four women to a room and oh two goodness. men to a room. So, yeah, we have the same per diem. We have the same scholarships. We have the same support services. It's based on need, not based on sex. Um, I, I think when you're in a smaller town, you, you get more media coverage than perhaps you do in, in larger cities and towns. So I think I, I feel like within the department, the athletic director's are there for everybody. They they truly are. Yeah. So I feel good about that. Um, but I also see pressures on the athletic directors to focus on the revenue sports because they are truly <laughs> the life and the breath of athletics departments. If they're not successful and, we're, and, and universities themselves are under such tight pinches for money that they can't justify money going to extracurricular activities, whether it's athletics or something else. Mm -hmm. So it's dependent on the athletic department to be self-sufficient. And when you do that, where does your focus go? It goes to the sports that are going to be bringing in money. And so it's a constant battle of, of trying to find that balance between giving football and men's basketball everything, which then in turn, if the resources are short, Who's going to get the short end of the stick? And it's not so much just women's athletics. It's the non-revenue sports. And I hate to see that also because men are losing opportunities also because just because of the way that you count the size of a football team. Mm -hmm. And does that come back to marketing? So if one were to market another sport a little bit better, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think so. And every coach in the world that's listening to this right now will just be hitting their fist against the wall. (laughs) I know that because that is the number one thing I heard from every coach. Well, if you would just market us more, we would bring in the PayPal. If you would just spend more money and give away more free pizzas and t-shirts. Um, (laughs) and I want to tell you, we have tried all of that. We've, you know, we've given away free tickets and we'll get thousands of people there and then unfortunately the next game they don't come back um and i there's just so much to do in life these days that um you know it's hard i think you know we 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 try to target certain populations in particularly in women's athletics it's the the retirees or the young families and but you know they grow and retirees move on to other places (laughs) so you know there's constant change there and so you have to stay on top of that to keep their interest and so I don't you know I don't know anymore if it's so specific to women's athletics as it is to non-revenue athletics 
as it is to there's so many wonderful things to do in this world, you know, yeah. and capturing people's interests is hard. It's hard. Do you think that media coverage plays into that return on investment for the revenue sports? I do. I do. But I, I've seen that here in Tucson. Our women get a fair amount of coverage. Yeah. Uh, our softball team, eight national championships, covered every night on the news or in the paper on the front page of the sports page. And yet we're drawing 2,000 to a game. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. never significantly increased. That's really interesting. So um, that's not to make us discouraged. No, yeah, of course not. But we have to look at the facts and try to figure out, then what is it? What is it that's going to put us over the top? You know, one of my, my, my cries has always been, as I've mentioned earlier, about our only role models were, were, were men and men in athletics. Yeah. And I think because of that, our sports have followed in line. And I think we also, as women, need to find sport and define our sport in our terms as opposed to men's terms. And that's what I think I love about softball or what I love about indoor volleyball. Indoor volleyball, and some people may disagree with me, is way more fun and exciting and strategically just watching the strategy to watch the women play versus the men. Because the men overpower indoor volleyball. It's Mm -hmm. serve, set, spike. Mm -hmm. Serve, set, spike. With the women, it's serve, volley, 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 set it up strategically, and spike. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot more... Uh, action, I think, in volleyball. And I think that's a sport where you, the women really shine. Uh, softball. Softball's totally different than baseball. Mm-hmm. It's quicker. It's faster. It's, you know, and we've done things in softball to tweak it, to make it more fun and more interesting and more, uh, you know, we move the pitcher's mound back. That's why I always say, when you look at my statistics, remember that the pitcher was three feet closer when <laughs> I was in the batting and the ball was a lot deader. Now they have a more lively ball. So, but you know, <laughs> that aside, <laughs> I think it, it was a good move on their part because we have a lot more hitting, a lot more mm-hmm. home runs, a lot more action. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I often think about that in terms of basketball, and here's where I'll definitely get a lot of booze. But, you know, again, we have to look at the facts. Women mm-hmm. are not going to be dunking right. like the men if we keep the basket at a level that has been traditionally men's basketball. You know, mm-hmm. I know we have, you know, lower baskets and all, but, you know, we have to, we have, to, I'm not talking about going back and playing, what was it, six on six or half court. Yeah, I'm yeah. not talking about that, but I'm talking about making the sport our own, however, however we get there. Right. Because I think when you look at the biological differences between men and women, certainly there's muscle mass and there's, there's all kinds of things that are going to make men, you know, stronger and, I don't know about more endurance. There's some research that's showing that women have more endurance capacity. But um, most sports that we, we look at that are spectator sports, the, the, really, the really, really, really interesting part of the sport is the test and the strategy and the unfolding of um, the strategy of one team against the other. And it's not just about, you know, how high can you jump or how fast can you run or Brute how... strength. Y- right. Exactly. Right. You know, I, I like... When people kind of comment about, you know, women's cycling, isn't that exciting? I always say, well, 
our tactics, you know, our races can be shorter. So our tactics are playing out in a more dynamic, explosive way often than the men's races. And not to just pit men against women, but the thing that drives me nuts is when you look at a men's race, it's not like people are standing on the side of the road with a speedometer saying, oh, this is an exciting race because they're going really fast. I mean, that's not what makes the sport exciting. Right. <laughs> it's, it's the tactics right. unfolding and, Absolutely. and watching the teams play off one another. And I agree with you. I think looking at volleyball, like you said, it's just the men are, yes, the brute force is there and it's impressive. And mm-hmm. that's part of what makes sport interesting and a draw but also we can't forget about that side of the sport which is is the technique and the skill and the strategy and that's as accessible to women as it is to men right right absolutely I agree with you 100 percent yeah so um and I I love getting into this discussion about the return on investment because I think this is an important aspect of um, looking forward to creating more opportunities for women in sport and I just want to touch on you know, your, your career has been, we've talked about this before, poetic. You were a student athlete, you were a coach, you were administrator, you were athletic director. So you've kind of come up through this whole career, which has been centered on sport. Why is it important to give women opportunity in sport, even if they may not end up in a career that's sport related? Well, I think that goes back to when we first started our discussion, just this, the, the health and the well-being of the person. Um, it's it's a lifelong uh it's 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 just a beautiful thing that you can take with you throughout your life whether you're whatever level you're playing you're connecting with people you're being physical you're using your mind um so you know as they say it's life skills that are involved and you know still to this day i you know i love hiking i would love to play softball if i could (laughs) um but, you know, there's pickleball now and there's other things that you can get involved in. There's certainly golf and, you know, these these kind of lifelong sports that you can do well into your elder years that uh, bring joy to your life and bring happiness and get you outside and get you moving. Yeah, it's a whole new, dim- a whole additional, I shouldn't say new, a whole additional dimension to life that right. makes everything more enjoyable. Exactly. So before we conclude, um, again, I mean, you've, just had this incredible career and I want to thank you again for everything you've done for women in sport. I mean, I know it's been interesting for me. I've done a little bit of research on you to prepare for this interview and reading all of the articles about you surrounding your retirement. You are truly beloved here in Arizona and it's so clear how many lives you've touched and made better. And I just, I want to thank you and I'm sure there are plenty of other people out there who are listening who are thinking the same. Well, thank you. But honestly, I'm the one who's grateful. I mean, I, I sometimes get a lump in my throat just thinking back, what if I had made some other decision or, or and, and would have missed all this glory? Because it yeah. was, it was glorious. It was just, you know, and then to, to step into your retirement years and have athletes and quite cheerleaders and mascots still contacting you and, and seeing them evolve and grow up to adulthoods and have their children, it's just, it's an incredible, it's a marvelous profession, and I just I feel so in, totally indebted to those women in the you know 60s and 70s who who pushed forward for us and didn't have opportunity themselves, but then turned around and cheered us on. And mm-hmm. I think that's what we can do is we once we get to a point in our lives and we've done everything we can do, then it's time for us to to turn around and 
cheer the the ones coming up, cheer them on. Yeah, and give back. I mean, I, I I look at you and what you've done the same for me. I mean, I was able to go to university because of Title IX mm-hmm. scholarship, athletic scholarship, and I know there are countless other women out there. And I mean, as the women in the 60s and 70s paved the path for you, you right. and many others like you have paved the path for us. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> I do want to say this. You know, as I mentioned before, I... I didn't aspire to be a collegiate athletic athlete because it wasn't there. Yeah. But that's why I always tell young people, don't let your dreams limit you. Because if I had stuck to my dream, I wouldn't have had any of these opportunities. That's and so you point. never you, sometimes you can't see beyond your dreams. Mm-hmm. And I know I couldn't back then. And now I can. You know, now I can. So don't let your dreams limit you. Yeah. You know. There may be opportunity out there for you that you don't even know that exists yet. you don't even yet. know it's coming. But when it's there, you grab it. Thank you so much, Rocky. Really appreciate your time. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. At Network for Advancing Athletes, we want to share with you the full spectrum of sport through the eyes of incredible women role models. Network for Advancing Athletes is a nonprofit organization And you can support this podcast with tax-deductible donations on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash advancingathletes. As a patron, you'll get to help us decide what topics to cover and who to interview. You can even hang out with some of our guests via online hangouts. Again, that's patreon.com slash advancingathletes, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash advancingathletes. Of course, you can always learn more about NAA at our website, advancingathletes.org. We are in the process of updating our website, so please stay tuned for more coming soon. You can follow us on Twitter at NAA underscore org. That's at NAA underscore O-R-G. And on our Facebook page, Network for Advancing Athletes. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please join us again next time.